everyone. Welcome to an all-new episode of Suiting Up Podcast. This is a show where I dive into the stories of some of today's leading athletes, entrepreneurs, and entertainers, and I interview them to try to discover their playbook of tools by which they use to reach success, more importantly, the way that they think about high performance. I'm your host, Paul Rabel, pro lacrosse player in New York and with Team USA. I'm also an entrepreneur and investor. Today's guest is our first MLSer, Major League Soccer star Cameron Porter. Kim played four years of college ball at Princeton and was a computer science major. I'll get back to the latter. We met when we were both named to Sport Techies, Most Entrepreneurial Athletes of 2017, and where I create media and help build out our company business portfolio, Cam is much more talented and technical, taking to the pitch, scoring goals for Sporting KC, while also being employed by the MLS to work in their engineering department. That's a group designated to digital, social, and app dev on behalf of the fastest growing team sports league in the world. That's right. Cam writes code for fun. Then he got employed by the MLS. And I decided to upload this episode to kick off my 2018 guest list because of two main reasons. Number one, Cam's incredibly thoughtful and articulate. I learned new tactics around sports psychology. Specifically, when you or I are in a funk, how Cam digs his way out of it and lessons learned for me. As well as how macro trends with new media and sports is not only impacting soccer, but the rest of the field. And that means you, lacrosse. So that's number one. Number two is something you'll have to get to the end of the podcast for. Cam's so talented that he's reached a place in his career already, he's young, where he's making a decision on sport versus business or really career after pitch. The podcast is a buildup and he breaks news on suiting up, which was a first for us. So thank you very much, Cam. And I hope everyone enjoys this show. Just recently, Rabel Events was given the opportunity to hire a seasoned sales executive. This person has 35 plus years of experience in business, but is also my father, Alan Rabel. Hiring is very important to me. Additionally, I'd like to give a shout out to our other recent hires, Stu, Jess, and Brett, and ask you a question. Are you hiring? Posting your position to job sites and waiting? Then waiting for the right people to see it? ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for and identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. That's the right candidates who are out there. ZipRecruiter knows how to find them for you. And right now, my listeners for Suiting Up Podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, absolutely free. You go to ZipRecruiter.com forward slash cross. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash cross, C-R-O-S-S-E, ZipRecruiter.com forward slash cross. It's the smartest way to hire. All right, let's rock out. Cam, thanks for joining. Yeah, no problem. I'm excited to be here. I'm going to start with a quote that I loved during our research uh, from the HuffPost. You said, when I have my glasses on, people are surprised that I'm a footballer. When I'm here, people are surprised that I'm a software engineer. I think once people get to know me, they're not surprised at all. <laughs> so no kid on, no glasses, but the, the, the true dual modern athlete of professional soccer player, entrepreneur, working for the front office. We'll dive into all of that. But let me start by asking you uh, about your upbringing, your origin story, how you found soccer, what interests you about computer science, and then Princeton. Yeah, so... It's an exciting summarization of everything. Um, but yeah, let's start at the beginning when I began playing for my dad's team, the Purple People Eaters, at age 
age four. That was the exciting beginnings of my soccer journey. Okay. And this was in PA? Yeah, yeah. This is, this is way back in the day. Um, and yeah, so we started out there. Really was just a side thing, just having fun with the family. Um, kind of growing up, ended up by age 12 at a point where got approached by a few teams like, look, you should be doing more than just rec soccer. And yep. kind of the ball rolled from there. Um, by the time I was in high school, it was definitely something I was taking serious, kind of dropped the other sports off the plate. And that happened in high school. Yeah. So that was the two big sports I was playing were soccer and swimming. Um, okay. I was probably a better swimmer, but swimmer, mm. swimming takes a lot of staring at a black line at the bottom of the pool. That's right. And a lot of early mornings. Early mornings. So, I did that. <laughs> so I was in, about 16. Yeah. So the, in high school is right where you start swimming before school and after school. Yeah. It's and <laughs> it is a mess. And I was just not prepared for it. So soccer was a choice for me, a little more creative, and it left time for my other big interest, which was academics. Well, let's let's hold on uh, before we jump into academics. I want to hear more because I, I do know that soccer tends to get lumped with basketball in, in the club scene. Mm-hmm. And lacrosse is starting to get there, or, or many would say is there, but you're seeing a lot of sports specialization mm-hmm. kind of with AAU and then soccer. And, and what that means is at an early age, there's this notion to get to the top, to get recruited, to become a professional footballer, mm-hmm. um, which is different than the traditional American team sports where, you, where you, the path is typically through college and then a draft. Yeah. In soccer, you also have the notion of, a, well, if you're 14, you can get picked up overseas and so all this other stuff. So it's, it's a race. How did you handle that with swimming and when did you know and what advice would you give to people trying to figure it out? Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely two paths. I was at Sporting KC most recently, and this year we signed a 15-year-old into our locker room. Yep. So you definitely see it now. Um, that being said, when I was going through the process, I, I was not thinking about professional sports. I was playing soccer because it was what I loved to do, and it was kind of my escape from all the other things I was doing. Um, that being said, I think you do see a lot more pressure for kids growing up to choose and focus, whether it's on the field or off the field. And I think that Personally, that comes at a detriment to their overall growth Um, in a broader sense, just because exposure and experience with multiple things just leads you to new interactions and you never know how they're all going to fit together. I I know the way I I know the way I play soccer is informed by what I learned doing gymnastics, how I can control my body. I know that my endurance comes from all those hours in the pool and you really don't know what choosing to specialize is going to mean for you in the long run Um, and making big commitments too soon often leads you down to a brick wall, and then you're, then you're stuck with hard transitions. Yeah, I love the notion that multiple sports, you can acquire different physical skill sets, as you mentioned. Uh, you s- tend to see the game differently, and the game being whatever it is you choose in high school and potentially play in college professionally, you can pull from those other mm-hmm. moments in our sports. But I also love that you get to build other relationships, yeah. and you get to interact with different coaches, and you meet new people, and that's so important as you get to the top playing professionally in the MLS or lacrosse or NBA, NFL, is, is that this is a game of relationships. And, mm-hmm. and you know, the, the, those who have longevity, those who endure multiple years playing, are able to find kind of the crevices in how to interact with other people, especially in team sports. So for you, you know, and at least for me, my parents were really helpful in, in allowing me and actually encouraged me to play multiple sports. Was that the same for you, even though your dad was your, your soccer coach? <laughs> yeah, so my, da- my dad was my soccer coach early on, but um, kind of the motto in the family was work hard, have fun. And what it came down to was they would support us whatever interests we were pursuing. And 
I mean, I, I think the epitome of it was when I, when I quit swimming, which was probably what I excelled at the most. Um, it was in a car ride to practice on a random Wednesday. And I looked at my mom. I was like, I don't want to be there. Huh. She's like, perfect. Let's turn around the car. And so we went right back home. And so it was, there was, there was a never a pressure in my family to, to do this one thing, to be great at it, but really to explore your passions. Hmm. Um, and I think I was fortunate for that because I think, I think not only parents putting pressure on kids to choose and focus and excel, I think parents just feel pressure from society to push their kids to do it. And that's, that's something that's, that's hard and we probably need to address. Yeah, that's a big piece. Now, when you were excelling soccer-wise, especially in high school, mm-hmm. and we will jump to academia, what were you doing away from the field? Yeah. Because I do think there's a lot of the, – the one thing that, that soccer shares with lacrosse, and lacrosse, I have to check our, our own egos and, and the people in the sport. We're like, well, we have what's called wall ball. <laughs> you know, we, we, can, we can work on our repetitions and build our skill sets by finding a brick wall and just passing. Like, yeah. Well, so can soccer players. Yeah. You know? so, so what were you doing specifically to improve your technical capabilities? Yeah, yeah. so I'm probably going to reveal my, my biggest strength in soccer and my biggest weakness. Um, I always loved going in my garage through the winter, laying out what actually were these bricks from when we, we built the chimney, new chimney in our house, on the floor, and just dribbling around them, listening to my favorite music, listening to my favorite podcast. And that was kind of, that was the me time. Hmm. And outside of the, the three like training sessions that we would go to per week with the team, which are so far away, that's what I would do. I'd even after training sometimes do it. Um, and so doing that in this small little single car garage around these things got me really good on the ball. Yeah. And so like footwork technique. Footwork technique. And it was, and it was really a thing. You'd, you'd watch a video on YouTube and I'd be like, wow, like, can I, can I do that? Like I heard David Beckham was dribbling around cones for 30 seconds, 30 times in a row, mm-hmm. getting incredibly good. Like, can I do that? Mm-hmm. And just pushing myself and enjoying the challenge of picking up new skills. I learned something really interesting from the co-founders of iSoccer, mm-hmm. which is this OTT instructional dev platform in your sport. And they said that what we found out or we discovered over time through teaching ourselves, because they also play in the MLS and GSB guys, mm-hmm. they said most people think as you graduate to the next level in playing that the game just gets faster. And they're like, well, the game's getting faster. The game's getting faster. So not only is it getting faster, but the skill has to improve in smaller spaces because the, the, the field doesn't get bigger. Yeah. The athletes get bigger and faster. So that means you have to operate in a smaller window and your skill has to get better technically. So soccer does a great job and it makes me think of it in, in your small garage with the, with the bricks is like, okay, you were working on going in and out faster mm-hmm. technically, right? And then probably getting smaller and smaller windows. And I think that's really important if you're a young player out there to, to try to think about, okay, not just moving faster, but closing the, the window of, of, of the area of which you're operating. Oh, yeah. And I, I think that's huge. I, I mean, I don't want it to even sound like I stopped doing that as I reached the professional level. I can remember two years ago coming back from my knee injury and being back home in Ohio, and I was kind of on the Soylent kick, which was a whole entire another thing, but yeah. had a bunch of bottles of Soylent and I laid those out all over my garage and it kind of pushed you to not knock, not knock over the bottles, dribble around those and really continue to refine your skills because as you iterate through those levels of play from high school to college and maybe professionally, you're going to have less opportunities to make a difference on the ball. And when you do get those opportunities, more is going to be required of you. Mm. Um, and you have to be able to do these little things right, keeping control while having like a greater vision for what's going on outside of your little space. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the biggest challenge is not only being good on the ball, 
but understanding how you fit into the greater scheme of the team. Mm. And your greater scheme, as, as you've uh, matured in, into what you're building and your platform as an athlete entrepreneur, um, was was first kind of founded. It sounds like in, in academia as equally important to you in high school, and that's where we I, I cut you off to start talking about <laughs> youth sports. But talk about your approach to yeah uh, academics. Yeah, so I think I, I always had a big love. Well, I was a nerd. I was a nerd in high school. I was, even though even though I was playing soccer, I was the shyest guy in school. So yeah, even, well, which by the way, why is there a negative connotation associated with being like I I I, I always like. <laughs> cringe around that because we, we we throw that around a yeah. lot in sports and i read one of your interviews where your locker mate w- was was saying that about you and and yeah. you, you obviously secure individual didn't take offense to it but i i actually prefer spending my time now with like quote unquote nerds it's, <laughs> it's far more fulfilling intellectually and experientially yeah anyway <laughs> yeah so that was that was definitely me it's like this jock versus nerd, wor- <laughs> yeah, nerd world yeah exactly and i was the epitome of a jock sometimes on the field and the epitome of the nerd off of it. But um, it was, for me, like playing sports was always an opportunity to be social. Um, and it was that and my my athletic achievement. Um, but everything outside of that was academia. I can remember just sitting at home on the weekends and instead of hanging out with friends, my thing was like reading the chemistry book over and over again. I remember in AP U.S. history, people would ask me, like, how, how did you get, like, all the answers on that multiple choice test right? And I was like, I reread the four chapters five times on Sunday before, before coming into this class. Like, yeah. And then not, the test was easy. And the test was easy. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to claim that, like, I'm some super genius. I just chose to allocate my time towards reading that textbook. And you can make those choices in, at any stage of your life towards what you're interested in being good at. And that's, that's one of the big things I found is that. You really can choose what you're going to excel at. And what were you then sacrificing that you think most of your peers your age were doing? Because if you were working on your technical skill, you were going to practice, you were rereading the book four or five times over mm-hmm. or the chapters. Yeah. I mean, I, I, was, I was sacrificing a social life. I, I did not have as many close friends as most people did in high school until probably my junior or senior year. And that was at a point where I had already committed to go to Princeton. So I felt secure in the fact that I kind of have this path forward academically, like can loosen up the reins here. Um, but yeah, and it, I think that over time, I've realized that there, there is a huge value to having social networks and close bonds. I think your efforts and endeavors are, are going to be enhanced by the people you choose to share them with and connect with and how you add value to their lives. So that's something that I've definitely matured into and was not thinking about when I was in high school and super shy and only wanting to look at books. <laughs> yeah. What was Princeton on your roadmap early? It was not. I remember, <laughs> I remember going to well, in soccer, we have the Olympic Development Program, and mm-hmm. you do well enough, you basically get invited to this big tournament in Florida. Um, I remember playing there, and the assistant coach from Princeton reached out to me afterwards, and I was like, holy crap, Like, this might be something I can do. I can, I can go to one of the most amazing schools in this country through soccer, um, and it wasn't something I'd really considered. I, I didn't have a lot of intentionality in my youth. It was a lot of it was just serendipitous opportunity that kind of fell on my path. And I don't know if that was because of how I was doing a breadth of things or what it was, but I was definitely fortunate in that regard that it came across my plate. And then you communicate, they see me play a few more times. I go to their camp and one thing leads to another and yep. that's where I end up. So, so talking about now again, and, and then going back to, to your choice at, at Princeton, but now you know, what's fascinating about you as a, as you know, labeled one of the, the top athlete entrepreneurs in all of sports, and that was done by Sport Techie and backed because you are a player for a top five sport 
in the MLS and are also employed by the front office of the league uh, from an engineering front, front office, back office, computer science standpoint. We'll dive into that. You do a lot. And MLS t- tends to be, over the last three or four years, leading the charge with digital and social efforts when you look at team sports. So that's, that's not a, a giveaway position. Um, so doing both is very unique and one of a kind. Uh, but getting to that point, you, mm-hmm. you chose to be a computer science major at Princeton, and you kind of just like backed your way into that. Is that right? Yeah. So it, it, it's a funny story. Um, I went into Princeton thinking I was going to do the classic econ route. You kind of think of Princeton, you think econ, finance, banking. Yep. That, that's the path. Wall Street. Yeah, Boom. Exactly. Boom. Yep. You're making your money. You're living that life. But um, partway through my freshman year, you you kind of hear rumors on campus like these are, these are the really hard classes. And the rumor on campus was introductory computer science. Like that, that'll make or break you. Um, and so myself and a couple of my friends on the team said, you know what, like, let's just what, let's see what can happen. Like, what's the worst that can happen? So we go into this introductory computer science class in this huge lecture hall. And I remember the first slide that pops up is basically it's the slide teaching you how to read binary. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. Right. This is I have never seen anything like this. Like I am I am I'm reading a seriously a foreign language here. Right. Um, and the first two weeks of that class was I have never had stronger imposter syndrome than during that period. <laughs> I was so scared to like ask a question, do anything. I was like, do all these people, these people all around me probably been coding for years. Like they're just flying through this. Right. Um, but it was nice to, and, and this goes back to why it's nice to have a team. Like, so I, I had my two friends there who also had no experience yep. and we basically spent that time really getting good at the basics because we thought we were so far behind everyone else. Hmm. Um, and so that pushing us our, ourselves to really establish that foundation, which in academics or athletics is incredibly important. You can never underestimate the fundamentals then set us up so well for the rest of our time at Princeton, where, because we had the grasp on that. We could really enjoy the beauty of algorithmic thinking, of designing efficient systems, all these things. And we basically continued to take computer science courses, ended up realizing we should just be computer science majors. Yep. And was that a couple of questions? First one was, did that interfere with practices? I'll give you an example. At Hopkins, um, we tend to go econ or political science, and, and that's more or less path dependent on our predecessors who played the cross and graduated the program. But if you were going to do a pre-med, that was typically an, an afternoon workload mm-hmm. of courses, yeah, and that would directly interfere with playing. Um, so did that ever conflict, or were you fine? So it's, it's actually probably one of the things Princeton does really well. Mm-hmm. Um, they break out a block during the day from about 4.40 to 7 o'clock where there are no classes on campus. Huh. And so during that time, teams practice, um, and students can go pursue their extracurriculars, whatever they may be, whether you're doing something with green energy, whether it's LGBTQ causes, yep. anything, so that there's there's always a time during the day where you have the opportunity to pursue the things you're interested in outside of class. So choosing a major, playing a sport, was always designed not to conflict yep. with those endeavors. So that, I think that's something that we were really fortunate to have. That's really great, and I think unique. I hadn't heard of that from, a, from another uh, athlete's experience at a university. The second question, um, has to do with how almost kind of cavalier you were where, you know, we, we come into school, or we're students, and we're trying to decide our major, and I'm, I'm also an athlete for a Division One soccer program. Let's go find the most difficult class to take. <laughs> like, most athletes, <laughs> yeah. no matter the sport, are like, what are the easy courses to take, <laughs> right? Like, where, where are the professors? Now, let's find something that we want to do, but like, let's let's... 
let's try and get our feet you know, yeah. kind of anchored into the ground and, and feel comfortable here. And let's definitely get some classes under our belt that allow us to play. Yeah. Uh, but you went the other route. So would you say that is out of your competitive spirit or you just always, it sounds like you're always been long on academics and that was something that ingrained in you either intrinsically or extrinsically through your family? Yeah, I would say it's definitely a bit of the latter, but my friend Matt Sanders here and he was a couple years older than me on the team. He could attest to the fact that the group of people in my class were were kind of a bunch of kids who were interested in sitting in a library together studying mm-hmm. and and we would we would kind of get poked fun at by the rest of the team because that's kind of we would spend a lot of time doing that together and um it was because we had that that group of people who were all pushing themselves that were like you kind of build up confidence they're like okay you're gonna do it all right well i mean if you're doing it i mean i, I guess i can do it and we'll figure it out social circles are so contagious man yeah you know we look at how we are as people and we study you can study genograms mm-hmm. and that's understanding your family and your parents parents and the way that they were brought up and and these kind of social circles that former president obama talks about often and in whether that goes into politics or business um but but the other big social circle is your friends and that's often by geography the neighborhood and then just like shared common interest and that really sculpts a lot of the uh maybe security around certain choices and you deciding to, you know, kind of hunker down in the library with your, with your teammates is a lot, e- lot more of a kind of a simple and easier decision mm-hmm. if you were versus if you were doing, going and doing that on your own. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that friends help you deal with your insecurities and all three of us were incredibly insecure about doing it, but because we had each other to be our blankets and cover that up, we yeah. were able to pursue this thing and go out and do it. And I think that just having those connections and understanding how the people you put yourself around are going to inevitably f- filter the information you're exposed to as well as the opportunities is something that I've really tried to focus on and as I've matured, understand. Um, and doing it intentionally in each thing you do, understanding that those people you choose to connect with are in a lot of ways going to determine your next three, four years. And um, yep. yeah, it's, it's a powerful thing when you start internalizing it. Today's episode is brought to you by Mattress Firm, where everyone knows how important stretching is before an event. Mattress Firm also adds to your stretch, except it's through your dollar bill. Your budget stretch literally further when you're shopping at America's Neighborhood Mattress Store. It's a true home run, as they call it, and you'll have a ball. Or in lacrosse nomenclature, a natural hat trick, maybe, would be the correlation. Definitely an OT game winner, I think. Mattress Firm is the head coach when it comes to mattress expertise, but know this, they are more than just mattress experts. They have a game plan that helps you transform your mattress into a full bed and bedroom from adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor. They have you literally and figuratively covered up like your favorite cornerback or the best short stick D midi on the team. Go to mattressfirm.com forward slash podcast to see what deals are happening as you listen to the sentence I'm speaking. They'll offer you 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Talk about a one-two punch, a knockout, if you will. Or again, a cross-check that's legal that led to a turnover heading down the other way for that OT game winner I just talked about. Score big with a perfect bed. Head to mattressfirm.com forward slash podcast to get the play-by-play on how you can monumentally improve your sleep today, tonight, and tomorrow. Go for it. Back to the field, and when you were first brought on, 
you said you were just excited to play for a Division <laughs> One soccer team, and you weren't a top recruit. No. And, and that also went into the draft, although being drafted in the third round is, is a really impressive feat, mm-hmm. especially when you look at your sport being as global as it is. Um, nevertheless, that kind of head-down mentality, also going back to your competitive spirit, your process at Princeton into the draft, personal development, team-wise focus, how did you address that as the student-athlete for one of the top institutions on the planet? Yeah, I mean, it, so much of it is, and I think it's something Princeton would admit to in any any big university, is dealing with imposter syndrome. So, I mean, I, hmm. I walk onto the field at Princeton during my first preseason, and I feel like I know that I'm not. I didn't come out of one of the top developmental academies for soccer. I'm just kind of a random recruit from Ohio. Um, and... It definitely is something that plays in your mind, and you have to be careful with it. I, I can vividly remember the the first time that I felt like I made a play on the field during preseason that was emblematic of who I was before I came there, and it was just kind of dribbling through a couple guys in a small five five v five drill and scoring a goal. And when I did that for the first time, and I was like, "Wow, wait, I, I can I can do this at yeah. this level." Um, and I think I think being cognizant of those things on the field and off of it when you when you have that first realization that wait a second like everyone has to figure it out when they go to the next level like and knowing that it's going to happen and you just have to keep on pushing yourself to do it i think is incredibly important and i'm sure we'll get there but i i can tell a similar story about doing it at the professional level yeah so let's get there then you were drafted to montreal mm-hmm. and your first opportunity in a game in stoppage time you score one of the biggest cl- goals in club history um advancing your team to the concacaf Champions yeah. League semis. Yeah. So that knack for scoring. But coming off the bench, as we both know from a sports psychology standpoint, is challenging, right? You're not in the flow of the game, and you got to take that one opportunity, especially in soccer, um, you know, a little bit more in lacrosse. Definitely, uh, you know, you get more touches in basketball, that flow of the game, but not being in the flow, coming off scoring a big goal. Kind of walk us through that moment for you and what that was like, and then we'll probably go off on tangent. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so I kind of want to, I want to lead up to it in the sense that I never expected to be on that field or even in the 18 dressed to play in this game in front of all these fans in the Olympic stadium in Montreal. I expected to be sitting in the suite with the rest of the team, watching these veterans go and compete for the the biggest trophy in, in soccer in North America. Um, and I remember walking into the stadium just as part of the 18 going to warm up and having the crowd stand up in a standing ovation and applause for our home for the home team mm-hmm. and just being like if this is all I take away from professional soccer like this has been a once in a lifetime experience um how many people so i think that was around 40,000 40,000 yeah and it was and it's in a dome stadium so it's just <clears throat> loud just loud yeah. and um so it was just i just remember appreciating warming up out there um but it's the kind of thing where you do something for so long you you can't help but get into your rhythm and whether with soccer, whether it's lacrosse, whether it's basketball, you kind of you're on the field, you're warming up, and you kind of just lose track. You don't you don't even really look out there. Um, the sea of faces is just a sea of faces, mm-hmm. and, it, and it looks like any other wall you've played in front of growing up. Um, and so I remember during the game, it, we, we were going well, and we were up one zero. Um, and in the basically it was like the 70th minute, we we give up a PK, um, which is bad because if they score a goal. Basically, they're going to go through on a one-one tie um, to the to the to the championship. And that's because on aggregates, typically, if you score an away goal, it gets valued, right? A little yeah. Bit more. Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
And at this point, I realized that there's an opportunity that I might go into the game. I was kind of, there's one center forward who was, had already been subbed in, and there was kind of me as a backup to that center forward on the bench. And now we're, we're down a goal with very little time left, essentially. And I now realize that this is, there's a potential for me to be the next guy to go on this field. Um, and it's at that moment that you, you really start focusing and trying to watch and understand like where you fit in on the field, what position you're going to be playing, who are the guys on the other team that are out of energy, who's struggling to keep up with their pace. Um, I kind of remember like a joke through college was just, was just sprint till you score. And part of me like just thought like these people are, they're dead tired. They're playing on turf. They don't usually do that. I can tell that this outside guys has just been being run up and down the field all game long and sprint till you score. (laughs) And so I I go on the field kind of with with that in my head. And first things, first thing that happens basically is one of my friends collects the ball in the defensive third. He starts carrying it forward, Callum Malice, and he's just got a Scottish hammer of a right foot. Okay. (laughs) And just, (laughs) and so I just start making a run across that, that, their, their right back down our left side who had just been exhausted all game. Um, and he, I mean, he was able to play basically a 60 yard ball, which it's probably one of the more impressive feats down the field, right to my chest. Very few players can do that in global <laughs> yeah. soccer. Yeah, it was it was it was an unbelievable ball, and I think it should get as much of the credit as the goal does. But um, you collect the ball, and you're just you're just back to where you've always been. I mean, you've done it enough growing up. You've been kicking a ball against the wall, throwing the lacrosse ball, shooting mm-hmm. that free throw, and you just do what you're used to. Yeah. Um, what I wasn't used to was celebrating in front of 40,000 fans. And so I didn't really know what to do at that point. <laughs> but like, yeah, but, but that's, that's more just icing on the cake, right? Exactly. I think I ran and did a dance move I've never done, maybe did an airplane. And then, and got, then, and then my the friends tackled jumps me. on you. Yeah, they tackled me and stopped the embarrassment. So that was nice of them. <laughs> let, me, let me ask a few questions leading up to it. So in, in soccer, we often see uh, guys getting called up from the bench and then they go through this warm-up routine. Yeah they're not necessarily getting put into the game. That's right? <laughs> no, they are not necessarily getting put into the game. So what's that like from an experience of, of being a, on a player who's been called up to warm up and then not getting put in versus eh, maybe I will? The focus is the same? Or is there, does it add to anxiety? I'm just curious from a, yeah. from a psychology, psychology standpoint. So to kind of to give some clarity, a lot, of, a lot of teams will, around halftime, because you're only allowed three subs in soccer around halftime, uh-huh. send their entire bench to go start warming up. And this is not intense. Just basically get your body at a state where if they think in the next five minutes they're going to want to put you in, then you really start kicking up the pace, right, which is what you're talking about. Gotcha. Um, now, when you start doing that, that also does not mean you're going on the field. Um, and I think it is something challenging to deal with because it can go as far as the coaches call you up, get you going, yeah. pull you over to the bench, you change into your game jersey, strap on the shin guards and then they're like the game's changed and you're you're back you're back warming up and this can this can happen i know guys on certain teams where this would happen game in and game out and i think it's one of the hardest things where you really can't start questioning why you're not making it on the field and it just takes the focus to understand understand where you add value and know your roles and responsibilities um and I think when you do that and try to stick to those and excel at those, like you put yourself in a position where you're less likely to to get too far in your own head. Yeah. Um, because I, that, I think that's one of the biggest challenges for anyone who's who's playing a role, not a starting role, is 
just having the confidence to know that like there is value that you add. Yeah, the ego becomes the enemy there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What What about from the bench? And and is this a regular thing where you are watching the fatigue of your potential defender, certain nuances, missteps, mishaps, um, and and really calculating there because. I think that's such a great utility for people, whether you're a starter and you come off, whether you're coming off the bench and you're the sixth man of the year, uh, a number of different things can take place halftime. But from my experience, this is something that I'm learning just hearing you is like, I, I tend to watch the game versus potentially watch my defender specifically. Yeah. Is that something that you picked up over time? It sounded like it worked here. Is that your sole focus? Yeah, so it it definitely it definitely was... Um, I, I found that a lot of times, especially playing an attacking role, you, you can quickly learn what a, what a defender's good at. Um, it could be the kind of thing that they're really good in coverage and they're terrible one-on-one. It could be the kind of thing that they're not actually communicating to their center back when you're making a run across the back line. Hmm. Um, and I think when you, when you start noting those things and you realize, okay, like this guy's actually a really good one-on-one defender, but I can tell that he's not communicating that the left winger is making a run behind his center backs. Then all of a sudden, when you get on that field, that's the first thing you should do 10 times. And yeah, that really just tests that limit. Um, one, of the, one of the interesting things I also picked up, especially from Jesse Marsh, who's now the head coach at the New York Red Bulls here, um, was not revealing your hand too early. Um, hmm. I kind of had a, several go-to moves that I'd practiced a lot in my garage dribbling around bricks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we all do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And one of the things he taught me was along the lines that you don't want to show them too early what you're really good at. Um, you can lull them into a fake sense of security by like teasing the ball forward and then playing it back, kind of doing the easy thing, getting the ball moving, getting comfortable. And then once they think they have it figured out is when you really put your cards on the table. Um, and I think that's even more important when you're, you're coming off the bench is knowing when's the right time to use the extra energy you have and the special skills you have to make that difference. Wow. Wow. That's really great. One last thing around playing, and we talk a lot about this on this show is, is kind of the sports psychology leading up to it, whether you're coming off the bench or starting the game from the anthem to the first kick mm-hmm. is anxiety, yeah. uh, anxiety or nerves. And, and they're both very different. And sometimes they coexist, sometimes they don't. Where does kind of the pregame jitters land on you? And how do you process them? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I think I'm kind of weird. I'm not, I'm not the kind of guy that puts the headphones on and starts listening to loud music. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of person who likes to, yeah, I like sitting there and chatting with the people. I like to, I think dealing with the anxiety and the nerves for me is just making it feel like practice. Um, and what practice is like is you're, you're there with your teammates, your friends, and you you're hanging out and and you're all doing the thing you love and i think the closer i get to that experience in the locker room before the game the better i'm going to perform because that that's when i feel fluid and creative and really just enjoy what i'm doing i think there's there's so often a clear distinction and you can think of the good games i've had and the bad ones Mm -hmm. where i'm out there enjoying and doing what i love and when i'm out there struggling and trying to just trying to like do something and a lot of it, I think, comes down to that prep and how you get into that state of play. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen Kotler calls it the flow state. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's, that all resonates with me. And I'm curious if you have any specific hacks to get you out of a rut. 
you know, we, as those games, I, I hear you say it and I experience them every season. Now I'm more aware of it when it's happening, but I still am trying to pick up uh, certain tips from other athletes when you make a poor decision, you make a bad play, and they begin to compound. And then the first step in anything, sports or life, business, you step away and be like, this is happening. This is okay. Mm-hmm. Kind of let, let, let's kind of not be uh, ruminating in this and, and be more present. But do you have anything specific that you do? I, 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 I my, one of my biggest tricks when, when things are going bad is to just smile. Like, mm. it, it's a very, like, it's a very simple trigger. It, just smiling on your own will make you happier because your body just, it's an association and your brain is just filled with these associations. And if you smile and just act like you're enjoying it, you're, you're going to, you're going to start tricking yourself into enjoying it. It's kind of the, if you had a really innate late night, even if you didn't get any sleep and you go take a shower and do your morning routine, your body's going to think you're just waking up mm-hmm. and you can start learning these hacks to your brain all the time. And I think one of those for me is just, I, I do best. I mean, it comes back to the thing, work hard, have fun. I do best when I'm having fun and enjoying what I'm doing. And so when I get, when I smile and do that, I get myself in a state of play and I'm more creative and I enjoy what I'm doing and I'm not, I'm not stuck in my own head. And, uh, I, I think, love that. So not even, I mean, if you really want to smile, forcing yeah, that smile, yeah. it's like that Superman theory of yeah. like really extending your yeah. arms and being open and being just more being positive big. state. Yeah. 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 You just, you just smile and you're like, yeah, I'm enjoying it. And then you go from there. Yeah. And the association to practice makes a lot of sense too. And, and I'm always trying to, trying to get there more frequently. You also talk about practice primarily in the, in the pro game, being in the morning, taking a large, large chunk of the morning to maybe the early afternoon. And with your kind of insatiable interest around computer science and tech and, and digital growth and being a part of the fastest growing team sports league in the world, um, you then said, okay, I have this time available in the afternoon. Let me reach out to the MLS and see if, if I can work <laughs> with them. How did that go? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, think, I think they kind of frame it a bit, um, the, the time in the afternoon problem. Um, it is it is an interesting transition from college to to professional level where all of a sudden you're you're granted some financial freedom to to do what you want with the time outside the day and you only have a sport that takes up a certain number of hours you can only train so hard for so long. That's right. Um, what I what I started realizing after probably about halfway through my my rookie year was that kind of like kind of like making games like practice. I really excelled when my lifestyle was like college. So when I was training and that was the thing I enjoyed doing. And outside of that, I was working on things I was interested but challenged by. And being in that state of constant productivity and stimulation actually makes me better on the field. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, to kind of parlay that into how this MLS consulting gig ended up happening is that I'd really been working in a more unstructured way on things I was just curious about supporting this company called the Ivy Research Council. Um, but it really was it was on my own notice to to do what I wanted to do and keep myself busy. Um, and speaking with some of my mentors, some of them here in New York, I I realized that it, it actually is beneficial to have have more structure and kind of push yourself to be to adhere to other people's goals and just work towards a common goal outside of my own. Um, and so over the course of the off season before last year, I reached out to the MLS headquarters here in New York and just asked if I could have a meeting, sit down with their engineering team and see if there was something we could work out. Um, and it was one of those meetings where I didn't know what to expect. I, when I was initially thinking of the idea to go work for a company in my free time, I, the MLS wasn't the first one that popped into my head. You mm-hmm. don't 
you don't think of the MLS as a technology company, just like you don't really think of the NFL, the NBA, or any, mm-hmm. any of these big leagues as their technology brands. But um, for a long time, they outsourced it. Exactly, but they deal with so much data and produce so much digital content and during and so many avenues that they they are huge digital presences in our lives and in terms of what they're doing. Um, well, well let, me, let me ask. So the M- MLS does have an engine in-house engineering team. So yes. there was a group that existed that you asked. Because I do think that that's unique, and, and it's yeah. good you brought that point up because that is uh, that's complex. Yes, and and it it seems really robust, and it doesn't surprise me. No, they. I mean, I will say that is one of the things that impressed me most when I sat down for this meeting was the guys on the team at MLS. Their MLS engineering team is incredible. Hmm. They 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 are top notch. The technologies they used are cutting edge in the field of how they're building cloud infrastructure, how they're building distributed systems. And I think it's a real differentiator for where MLS is going in the long run and how they leverage their digital strategies because they do have a coherent team working towards a coherent goal. Uh, and, that's, and that's honestly what convinced me, like, look, like I'm going to make this happen. Mm-hmm. If, if we can try to distill the cloud infrastructure, distribution strategies, digital mm-hmm. even, to what the kind of the, the front-end consumer experience is, yeah. what is it exactly? that you guys are doing and the initiatives that you have and what you're trying to procure? So I think I think probably the biggest way the consumer feels it is that whether you're consuming MLS content on YouTube, on your iPhone via an app, Android, on your Apple TV, the website, on TV, all these things, there's going to be a unified feel and form to it. You're going to know what the MLS brand is and you're going to know what it means to interact with the MLS digitally mm-hmm. because all that all those aspects are produced by the same team who are working together day in and day out with a unified goal. Um, so that's how the end user experiences. Mm-hmm. And they're all powered by the same backend system that ingests tons of data, of computer vision data from all these games, and then spits it out in a unified form across all these applications. What are a few things that you've learned about the MLS consumer? We know that, uh, or at least from a lot of reports in 2016-17, uh, said that, that you guys ha- captured a millennial base, fan base, more than any other pro sports team on a relative basis or per capita basis. Mm-hmm. So you're really strong there. What do you know about the soccer, the American soccer fan footprint and where are they living and what do they like? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's one of the interesting things that we talked about. The MLS fan is not necessarily the guy who played soccer growing up or the girl who played soccer growing up. It's, it's actually a lot of ways it's the person who played FIFA growing up mm-hmm. or the person who, who doesn't want to pay a ton of money for this professional sports experience and wants wants to have a local team they can afford to support and going to those games and it's a very different demographic in that sense what, what, what one of the biggest realizations that I think the MLS has had is that you're really not you're not targeting people who played soccer you, you you're targeting people who are interested in soccer from a cultural standpoint so so what does that mean I think it it means that these are people who who don't want to be served ads the entire time they're watching a game who who enjoy the nuances of something that's free-flowing it's like it's like theater like it's two big acts the first half and the second half Mm -hmm. and if you watch five minutes of it at any point you're not going to understand why it's enjoyable to watch a zero zero tie and why a zero zero tie can be more exciting than a six zero win um because it's it's not like football where every Mm -hmm. every play down the field is a huge collision and a highlight what's really cool is watching players over the course of the game interact and figure each other out and these 
these messy systems, basically, that are trying to be guided by, guided by a coach and hours of practice, try to feel each other out and one figuring it out better than the other. And people who enjoy that, that kind of, I think, long form content and just I think it's more of a cultural thing are probably going to enjoy soccer more, even if they haven't enjoyed it already. And yeah. I think that's I think that's something that's unique. Yep, that makes a ton of sense. Soccer, for me, and I got into it late, but I got into it uh, after I put Western State. I played when I was younger, um, had the opportunity to go full-time club, but mm-hmm. enjoyed playing basketball uh, and picked up lacrosse, so I decided not to. Then I stopped <laughs> playing for about four or five years, and it wasn't on any of the lin- traditional linear networks. Then I started playing FIFA as early as I think my freshman year in college and really loved it. And then I got into the English Premier League, yeah. La Liga, et cetera. And then I have, have since, since become an MLS fan. And soccer to me is the global game. It's a global language. Um, so that cultural community aspect is enhanced and what it means to like go to these games and, and either view it as, as a chess match or the intricacies of the one-on-ones, et cetera. I think the data that's captured, um, I think that this... this uh, this company, I believe they're called like Squawk Box. Have Squawk you heard? Bo- I have not. Squawk Box. I mm-hmm. think they're 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 in England, but they capture data like take ons, uh, yeah. successful take ons. It'd be like in lacrosse. You know, we we typically just stat goals and assists. Imagine if you statted number of dodges in a game by a midfielder. That's super telling. Yeah. Right, and it's it's not going to end up on the scoreline, but a lot of these statistics in soccer, they figured out okay. Rather than look at goals and assists at a 0-0 game or even a 6-0 game, there's so much that happens in between. Time on fields always kept total mileage or kilometers, however however it's measured. We don't do that in other sports. I think that's brilliant. What, I, what I'm curious, though, is from your experience at the league side and the team side, what's that relationship like being a single entity structured organization? How much influence does the MLS engineering digital team have on a team-to-team basis? And then given that, which teams do you think are doing the best job interacting with their fans? Yeah. So before answering that question, I want to say one thing and kind of pitch the MLS. Okay. Is that I think if you haven't been to a soccer game and you've only been to other professional sports, there's something unique when you're sitting in that stadium and every chant and every song that's being sung for 90 minutes by the fan isn't because the billboard or the announcer says, one, two, three, da, da, da. Yeah. It's, it's the full stadium and it's just... It all happens naturally, and that's I think that's something special. It's a state-of-the-art stadium, too, Yeah, yeah. Which, which has a big impact when you're walking in as a fan, yeah. and, and that has taken billions of dollars of investment. Yes, yes. Nevertheless, that's a big part of the experience. Yeah, so anyway, that kind of the billion dollars of investment and thing kind of plays into the, the single entity and the league structure here in the MLS and sure. why it's different from other leagues around the world and how there's pros and cons. But um, in case... The listener is not too familiar with what that means. Basically, the MLS owners own all the teams and they operate as a single entity, whereas in the Premier League, every team is a single business that can do what it wants. It can buy and sell players. Within the MLS, that's that's not the case. Um, and that's, that's beneficial in the sense that it keeps the league moving forward together. Um, it's a lot less likely than any that any one team is going to fall off the cliff because they have the support of everyone. Um, in terms of the player's experience and how they experience the single entity, it's a little bit more challenging because a lot of times you want you want the freedom to, to play for who you want, to do what you want, to negotiate for the contracts you want. But because you're operating under a single entity structure and your paycheck comes from the MLS, 
there's actually there's actually a strong set of rules that that limit where and what you can do. Like technically, you can't call it free agency under single entity status, yes. and that was a big push on behalf of MLS players to come to the table with a, an official collective bargaining agreement. Yeah, and that was recent, and then create their form of free agency that we typically see in a trade association sport like the NFL yeah. or the NBA. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's a right of an individual to be able to pick a market by which you want to play using your skill set yeah. or work. And, and, and I think I, I, I would love that to happen. Um, and I think it would be really powerful to, for the players. And I think you'd attract a whole new level of talent. I think the challenge is, and one of the things I think the MLS has done well, is that this, is, this, is, this was a new league. This, was, this, is not, this is not an established league by any stretch of the imagination compared to the NBA, the NHL, NHL or the NFL. Mm-hmm. And the single entity structure that they're operating under has given it the ability to attract more investment from business owners and really bring the league up without having the risks of all these individual entities going off doing their own thing and failing. Um, and I think there's an important balance there that I think is hard either as a player to realize and hard as a business trying to understand the player's feeling. And mm-hmm. for me, it's been fortunate. I'm kind of on, I sit on both sides. I get to listen to both of the meetings. Um, and I mean, everyone's people, like they, everyone has their interests. And I think, I think as the league grows and it becomes more and more stable and more integral part of your, your experience with soccer, that you're going to see more freedoms given to the players because ultimately, like the more players that are happy and want to play here in the MLS, the better the league's going to be. But the first thing you need for those players to do that is the infrastructure around that. And that infrastructure costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And having a single entity to funnel that money into the league and understand how to distribute those resources collectively is a powerful thing. Do you think your time with the Kansas City Ownership Group that is one of the most powerful sports data analytics companies, teams um, in the world, and they get contracted in by all different types of teams in leagues all yeah. over, different sports, one of you leveraged that association Two, um, do you think Kansas City, from a from a player's perspective, creates a better experience, you know, kind of on field and even from a branding perspective, digital media off of it, given those resources? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think if you look at what Kansas City does, they have an incredibly coherent strategy. I think, I think, I think we can separate off the the media side where they they produce incredible content and they do an exceptional job at it. From the data analytics side. The things Rob Heineman has led that group to do mm-hmm. is incredible. Yeah. Um, I mean, you you look at the other company in Fan Three Sixty, um, basically addressing data siloing of how do you how do you incorporate the people's liking players' stuff on Twitter with when they go to a game to then target them with a, a deal on a season tickets pass so that you hit them right when they're most interested, mm-hmm. and that's just that's just off the field. The things you can do on the field when you have this integrated infrastructure of cameras watching your games and this single stadium experience with your own app is powerful. And I think I think we all would agree that a unified experience is always much more enjoyable when you're not having to go to disparate things to get the information or the content you want. Yep. When it's just in one place and it feels natural and intuitive, that's powerful. And that's I think that's the thing that Sporting KC as an organization is focusing on. How do they make all the data that they pull in natural and intuitive to use to make good business decisions and that's why people pay for them to tell them how to do it yeah and and that's why it's called the soccer capital of america now is it is a special place to play soccer it's 
you, you're it's very it's different yeah it, it, soccer is like it's it's big like the other big teams there yeah well you're doing a, a wonderful job of of pitching the mls and, and even <laughs> and even underscoring uh kansas city as as the forefront leader in in where the direction is going digitally experientially um and and, and it kind of sound like the next commissioner um <laughs> it, i'll say though as, as a as a student athlete as a professional athlete entrepreneur the kind of unforeseen wrinkles that we have in our careers are often injury. Yeah. And you had an ACL tear uh, right after that big goal or shortly after, um, which kept you out of the subsequent season and then recently broke your leg. I remember we were, gosh, I was going to take a trip out to watch a match, watch you play, and and then we'll podcast. Uh, We had talked about that probably six six months ago or so. Yeah. And you've been recovering for five months. Yeah. Um, I remember emailing with you about that injury and was just really heartbroken because it's, uh, you know, it's something it's, as, as athletes know, it's just, it's unpredictable and you can do your best to put your body in a position to perform at a high level. And sometimes it's impact. Sometimes it's can be traced back to genetic, but yeah. it's also part of our experience as athletes and kind of shaving off the tire tread year over year, over year, over year and playing at a very high level and doing a lot of training. So, yeah. With injury, let's start with your experience, how to deal with it, um, and then we'll and then we'll move forward. Yeah, and I think as I dive into that, I kind of want to preface it with, I think that what I'll say about it, you should kind of think about and generally about athletes, is that a lot of times you're faced with the fallacy of success. You think you have to ask people who have excelled to get good advice on how to excel. Um, and injuries are something that are unforeseeable for a lot of athletes. And there's plenty of athletes who probably had terrible injuries in college who would have gone on to be better players than I was. Just like I may have gone on to be a great player if I continued playing barring these injuries because I had great habits doing these things, but these things happen. So in general, just I think that's a good thing to be aware of is that successful people aren't the only ones with great advice um, because unforeseen things happen like injuries, which I'll dive into now. Um, so after... After my this amazing goal, this start of a career, the highest high you could probably get to, mm-hmm. um, I basically have the worst knee injury possible. It was in Patriot Stadium in the 18th minute, probably mm. my third MLS game. Not on natural grass, no, right? No, 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 not on natural what grass. What a mess. <laughs> I, I can't believe, the people don't understand, I remember Thierry Henry coming over and playing for the Red Bulls in a playoff game at the Patriot Stadium. He's like, I'm not playing in this. Yeah. I don't understand the slide tackling, the artificial turf, but even cutting the ball. You can't get under the ball. You can't yeah. play the ball yeah. as you can on natural grass. I think, I think it's a, a mess. I think the simplest way for anyone to think about it, at least from a, the ball perspective, the, the health perspective, is one other thing. But like, mm-hmm. imagine to try going bowling without oil on the on the lanes. Right. It's just not. It's just not the same sport. <laughs> and it's, I can't believe right it. Right now, as it stands in the MLS, you basically have to deal with both and. Mm-hmm. it's hard on bodies it's hard on play um but getting back to the injury i went up for a header in the 18th minute didn't get touched when i came down my foot kind of got locked in the ground and instead of my knee bending forward it bent sideways hmm. um and it's the kind of thing where you, you you know instantly what's what's happened um and it's kind of a lot of thoughts go through your head like what is, what does this mean like what does it mean for my future? What am I going to do? I just dropped out of school to go pursue professional soccer. I had everything figured out. It was going awesome. Like thinking about signing a new contract, all these, all these cool things. And like all of a sudden, 
there's a, you have to, there's a fundamental change in what, what the future looks like. Um, and I remember going into the, the carrying me into the locker room. And I think one of the, one of the scariest parts was they kind of sat there with ice on my knee for a while before all the doctors got there and wanted to do the full evaluation. So they take off the ice. And one of the first things they asked me to do is move my foot and I couldn't move it. Mm. Basically when you knee goes out sideways across the LCL, you, your perennial nerve runs down that side. And so if it actually dislocates, you oftentimes sever that nerve and then your foot is basically done. Um, and so I try to move it and I can't that my, my concerns about soccer at this point kind of evaporate. My, my concern is like, what is life like when you have a paralyzed foot? Um, so doctors kind of go and start talking and evaluating. And as I'm sitting there, my knee starts warming up because they left the ice off. What had happened was my nerve was actually slightly frozen because they had put the raw ice on my knee. (laughs) And so I can move my foot. And I remember calling my dad at this point and just being like, guess what? Like, I'm going to be fine. Like, I'm walking. Like, it's no big deal. He's like, what happened? Like, everything's torn, but like, (laughs) don't don't even worry about it. Like, it's all good. Um, (laughs) And I think that was kind of, I think it was that moment was kind of the start of the realization that the whole experience is really going to be what you make it. And putting a smile on your face and just understanding that these, these hard traumas, these difficulties and, and, like, and suffering is, is going to make you stronger. And you can learn a lot of things about how you respond and what you do well when you're actually put under trials and tribulations. Um, and I think that was, I think that injury was probably one of the hardest times in my life. Um, I can remember basically at the outset after surgery, I would go into rehab and the start of rehab was basically laying on laying on the tables which every athlete is familiar with and my knee my knee couldn't bend more than three five three to four degrees it was just like this mm. just straight and the trainer would just sit there and try and bend it and i was basically just they would have me take extra painkillers before just because they're just basically breaking down tissue um so the first three months of my rehab was pretty much just that I was doing that for many hours and then trying to sit on a bike and then i would pedal the bike and try and break it down some more. Mm-hmm. And so you're pretty much, it's not even physical exhaustion in the sense that most people are used to it where you run for a while. It's like this mental exhaustion of like dealing with this pain all the time. Yep. And I remember coming home from rehab, from getting in at 7 a.m., getting back to my apartment at like 2, and just taking three or four hour naps just because I was so mentally exhausted from that discipline. And mm-hmm. I think I think that's something I kind of learned is that discipline is a scarce resource. You have to pick and choose your battles and when you leverage it. Um, but over that time, I just realized like what you're capable of overcoming and how much how much determination it takes to to really get back to where you were and how how quickly it can kind of disappear. Yeah, for injury, it's it, it, from the from the fans' perspective, often it is like okay, this this athlete's injured now; she or he can't play for until they recover. But we don't realize, and we're, we spent some time talking about your bandwidth and carving your day out in the mornings and the afternoons from from work on the field and work off the field, is that when you're injured on the road back, you don't just skip practices yeah. and, and focus on your rehab. It just becomes double the effort. So you have to be at practices, taking the mental reps, learning the new strategy, continuing building those relationships with the team. Then you go to the team workout, and actually as you progress in your injury heals, then you start participating in practice, but you keep doing the PT and PT for the future should 
be ongoing. Yeah. That's often why athletes get injured in the first place is that when we're healthy, we don't really do the muscle activation core work that keeps us from getting injured yeah. and would probably keep surgeons from, uh, from, from making <laughs> the money that they do. And it's like a paradox in the medical world is this kind of this friction between physical therapists and surgeons and often just recommended PT after surgery rather than before. Anyway, that's a, that's a rabbit hole we could go down. <laughs> yes. Um, but, but now you're looking at your time, especially since um, you broke your leg this past season as, okay, rehab more and probably in a reflective state. And as more opportunity comes on your desk, as you learn more, you become a a, a, a kind of fully equipped entrepreneur, having built businesses and worked for massive other ones, reassessing, okay, what is, based on what I've, I've done in my career thus far, what do I want to do moving forward? And uh, someone as dynamic as you um, kind of has the, the, the world and the sport and, and the convergence of technology and media as your oyster, where are you landing right now? Yeah, I think I think to start out and frame how I how I get to that decision is the best way the best way to think about dealing with tough decisions I think a lot of time is for something that that people deal with all the time which is relationships. And you can be in a strong great relationship um and the hardest choice is when that starts going bad to choose to end it right there than to wait it out and let it really get bad until you have to end it. Mm-hmm. Um and I think People that are good with hard transitions know when's, it, when's, when's the right time to make the choice um, and leverage those things you're also good at or leverage those other relationships that you have. Um, so anyway, the, the story starts with this injury and um, basically the confluence of many of the things I'm interested in, learning about technology at scale while working for the MLS, understanding the blockchain movement and how that's really grown over the last year and has something that I've been a part of and following and then having this injury um, and really not feeling like I'm at a point where I can continue to pursue it at the highest level that I want to. And realizing that, yeah, I can push it and experience that last 20%, but what's really the right choice is kind of to make the hard choice and decide to let memories be memories and enjoy those experiences and really take and seize this opportunity that passes by um, that comes in the form of all the, the summation of all the things that we've talked about and brought up. And I think that this off season has kind of been a period of clarity for me or reflection. And I, I have realized that it is no longer for me to continue pursuing professional sports, but rather to retire and pursue these other endeavors that I'm so interested in and excited about. <laughs> uh, well, I, I appreciate you sharing that uh, with me. I, I know it's a, a, a very sensitive topic yeah. and, and one that sounds like you uh, went to all of your available resources and advisors and friends and family to consult. And you're absolutely right. The hard thing about hard things, making that decision um, when it's most timely and effective rather than letting a really difficult decision hang around. Uh, so I commend you for that. And, and I, I kind of want to just learn a little bit more around how you make those hard decisions. I know it, in this case, sports can make it pretty binary. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but getting to that level of comfort, of course, you have the available resources and opportunities. So it's less about economic prosperity, say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a lot of kind of um, that athlete fulfillment of being on field. But 
the actual process of consultation? What do you, how do you kind of pursue that? Yeah, so I think how, how, I think the question of how do you handle and get to these hard decisions and actually make them, I think starts with being prepared and knowing that no matter what you're pursuing in life, there's going to be hard decisions and there's going to be things that you happen that are unexpected. And the way you deal with that is, I mean, in economics, it's called, or in investing, it's called hedging and mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, but it's having multiple interests and having these things that you're pursuing simultaneously and understanding that at any one time, one of those could end. And, um, I'm fortunate that doing so and having these multiple interests puts me in a position where when I did have that binary athletic thing of an injury forcing me to really start reflecting and thinking about the decision that I had the opportunities to choose from. Um, That being said, when you when you actually get to that moment where you're making that decision, I think that I think one of the simplest ways to move away from something is to think about it in terms of the 80 20 rule. and that is for anyone who's not familiar that a lot of times it takes 20% of the, the effort to gain 80% of the value. And then the last 80, 20% of the value is gained in 80% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can, I can look at the, the great soccer careers of players that last 10, 12 years. And I've roughly probably played 20% of that. But in that time, I've probably had 80% of the similar experiences. I've, I've scored big goals. I've, I've won championships. I've been in the locker room enjoying the banter. I've dealt with heart injuries, um, playing in front of friends, praying in front of family, enjoying what it means to sit down and have interviews with interesting people like you, make those connections. Um, and that's probably 80% of what anyone who plays for 12 years is going to experience. That being said, there's, there's probably 20% of it that I'm missing out on. Like, I would have loved to continue to pursue this sport and reach the level of the national team and, and represent your country at the World Cup. But that would probably take another 80% of the time. And... The fact that I've had this injury means that that becomes even more unlikely, even if I was willing to dedicate that time and effort to it. And I think anyone can apply the same type of thinking to anything you've been pursuing is, have you really gained most of the learnings and experience you've had from it? And what does it look like to gain that last 20%? Do you really want to become the world-class expert? And are you willing to risk the fact that you're not going to get there even if you do put that time in? Or are there other things where you're willing to put in the 20% of the time and get 80% of the value and really continue to push yourself and grow? Um, And so that's how I frame these decisions. And that's how I've made the decision to kind of pivot my lifestyle to the next thing where I'm ready for that exciting 80% because it's kind of like the junkie's high. You get get all of the bang for your buck right there. Yeah. Well, Cam, I really appreciate you sharing that process. That's helpful to hear. Um, and, And kind of revisiting the retirement aspect in sports is I I actually think that for a long time and and I don't I don't I'd have to research this more but I'm wondering if it's just a media play for sports like why do athletes particularly at at a certain age or or if they're leaving a team or if they want to take a break why do they have to announce a a retirement Um, and it's just a thought that goes through my head um, it, you know, there's, there's finality in it. There's important closure in, in way of contracts and, and, you know, salary and, and draft picks, et cetera. So I, I, I understand that to be the case, but adding to your 80, 20 in the decision process and, and, uh, you know, not knowing each other too well, but what I do tell people that I work with, and I've been given this through my advisors as well is it's critical that we make that decision, which you have, and, and that kind of lightens the load in some cases can 
can add more emotion, but will lead you to post-traumatic growth. But the other thing to just remember is, is we often um, allow things to have a level of permanence, decisions to have permanence in our lives. And that can be really pervasive. And, and you look at some of the greatest athletes of all time who retired and came back, it's like, that's a possibility. <laughs> and and uh, for you, I, I, I smile as I say this, is again, you know, that may be completely rolled out, rolled out <laughs> but the, 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 the idea that, you know, when you're addressing a problem and it's a difficult decision, you were really good at articulating kind of pulling out our bias or our partial uh, feeling towards it, being that it, this is actually us in our, in, in our experience. So trying to be unbiased in that approach, but also pull out all possibilities. Like this could happen. And even if it's you know, less than 1% chance of happening, it's good to just acknowledge that. And I've found that a lot of people don't like doing that because that requires you to pull out some negative possibilities of a mm-hmm. situation. And one of them, in your case, if you continue to play, you could break your other leg. That's a possibility, yeah. right? Yeah. You could be waived by a team and spend another, you know, or the other possibility is you make the national team. So it's kind of laying all those possibilities out. And one of them, and despite how sports make us feel around retirement, is that a year and a half, two years from now, could change and you could be back. Exactly. It, I mean, it's like, that's the beautiful thing about probabilities. No matter how small they are, like, there's still a chance. And I think that's why people take big risks and pursue big dreams is because no matter how small those probabilities are, there's always a chance. Just like there's a chance maybe this interview is a ploy and I'm going to recover all next year and come back <laughs> on the U.S. national team and take us to the World Cup. But, Which would be amazing. And, I, and I'd, I'd <laughs> ask that I could get an interview after that if that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, but I, it, that's, it, it's a very good point that you bring up. And I think it makes a good practice of reflection to really look at your life and what you're doing and understand what are the probable outcomes, what are the improbable ones, what might happen that prevents me, what might happen that just speeds things forwards. Because you live long enough, you're going to experience all of them. And you just being prepared and having the forethought and just the taking the time to reflect on it, I think makes you more prepared and puts you in a position where you can make better decisions about the risk you take on. That's why that's why financial firms have black boxes and algorithms analyzing their risk all the time. Mm-hmm. Is because it's a real thing and we don't operate in a deterministic world where you do something and you're guaranteed an outcome. Yeah. Like that's kind of been debunked by quantum mechanics on the smallest scale and by probabilistic thinking on the largest and I think when you start understanding and internalizing that, not only does life get a little bit more scary, but it gets a little bit more exciting because yep. you do really never know what's going to come across your plate. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that. And, and through this conversation, it's clear that you are a very competitive individual, compassionate, empathetic, intellectually curious, um, and, and very ambitious. So we'll wrap by something a little bit lighter, but suggestive for all of us, me included, and our listeners in, in Formerly, maybe a chemistry textbook you're reading over and over again, or is it AP History? Um, where are you gathering your resources now? Where are you spending your time? A favorite book yeah. that you're currently reading that you've gifted? Just something that, that we can all try and uh, consume more to be thinking yeah. as Cam Porter does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my mind's a bit ridiculous sometimes. I probably have four books and a Kindle sitting next to my bed, depending on how I'm feeling before bed. That's usually when I read. But the one that comes top of mind based on the conversation we just had would be Ray Dalio's Principles. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the listeners, Ray Dalio basically over the course of his life has built the biggest hedge fund in the world. And 
you can read his book and it starts with a small autobiography about how he got there. But then it quickly gets into these principles he's collected over the course of his life, both life principles and work principles. Um, and there's going to be some of them that resonate with you and some of them that don't. But you get an incredible insight into someone who spent a lot of critical time reflecting and understanding how you make decisions. Um, and I was fortunate he published this book this year because it has been helpful in understanding how you how you make decisions. Because essentially what differentiates Bridgewater from every other firm is that whether it's a business decision or a human decision, he's put together an infrastructure for making it systematically. And when you can start doing that and start stop feeling guilty about the decisions you make, you actually really do empower yourself. Yeah, and I'll add that, uh, that Ray Dalio and his organizations currently and previous and the multiple funds he's been a part of as one of Silicon Valley's most successful investors of all time, um, he is constantly driving home communication and vulnerability and feedback loops between senior executives all the way down to analysts, associates, brokers, whoever's involved, and it's a two-way feedback system. Communicatively, in sports and in business, I've elevated that to, to, to prominence of importance, at least for me, to try and be a better communicator, uh, listen to others, and kind of really lean into those important um, conversations that require some level of vulnerability. And uh, it was a great recommendation. And uh, we'll have that in our, in our show notes, but really appreciate you showing your vulnerability and, and, and sharing your story and, and the next and current phases and steps in your life and, and being so eloquent and articulate. So thanks for joining me. And I think timing of this show couldn't have been better and, and uh, would have loved to have gone to a Kansas City game. Maybe I'll still do that. But <laughs> when I make I, that return. That, yeah, when you make the return. There you go. Thanks, brother. Yeah, no problem. It was awesome. If you enjoyed Cam Porter and my conversation as much as I did, please be sure to let us know. And you can talk with both of us on social media. Our Twitter handles is at Cam39Porter and at Paul Rabel. Be the first to listen to next week's episode as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with our first ever guest, New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick. Coach, good luck in the Super Bowl this weekend. All episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. Also, please consider lending us a subscribe. That means a lot, and it's free. Thank you. There is a shortcut to our show notes by visiting studentuppodcast.com. And of course, a special shout out to our show's sponsors today, Mattress Firm and ZipRecruiter. I'm looking forward to next week's episode, everyone. It's either going to be with a Andrew, Scott, or Kelvin. That's all I'll say. Hope you have a great week.